Welcome to the Research and Focus podcast. I'm Susan O'Neill, the Associate Dean Academic and Research for the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. This podcast focuses on in-depth interviews and conversations with our faculty members on their research activities and the impacts of their work locally and worldwide. LGBTQ people around the world face many challenges. One of them is how they can be persecuted in their countries because of the people that they love. Hi, I am Marcus, and welcome to episode 5 of the Researching Focus podcast. In this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Sharlene Jordan, who talked about the challenges of LGBTQ refugees seeking safety in Canada and how her research has helped to inform governments on the human rights of this population. Enjoy. Dr. Jordan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, I would like to start asking you to tell us a little bit about your academic background and, and your current position with us at SFU. Sure, yeah. I joined SFU in 2011. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in counseling psychology. Um, I completed my graduate training in counseling psychology mm -hmm. at UBC. Mm -hmm. um, I also have an undergraduate degree in political studies, so oh, I'm, wow. yeah, maybe not your conventional counseling psychologist yeah. in that way. I'm a bit of a hybrid in terms of discipline. Mm -hmm. And uh, when did you join uh, the Faculty of Education? So 2011, 2011. I, I started as a, in a limited term position, yeah. and then 2013 was the beginning of my oh, tenure appointment. Okay. Yeah, so okay. full-time I've been with yeah. the SFU Faculty of Education since 2013. Thanks. Um, I know that you focused on LGBTQ uh, refugee. Can you tell us a little bit more what motivated you to um, go in this field? Sure, <laughs> yeah. I was a graduate student and also volunteering with an organization called Rainbow Refugee. Mm -hmm. um, and as I was doing this work, seeing all of the ways that uh, the Canadian refugee system in many ways, and I'd say the international refugee protection system in many ways, is not designed with sort of homophobic and transphobic persecution in mm -hmm. mind. Um, it was designed around kind of more large-scale collective mm forms of persecution, mm -hmm. like war. Mm -hmm. um, and so witnessing the ways that people struggled mm -hmm. to navigate the demands of the refugee system, and then also the ways that sort of as a community, uh, Rainbow Refugee created kind of safe space, mm -hmm. and uh, there was kind of peer support, Many of the things that people needed as part of their, what I call kind of their recovery and healing process, were being created in this small, underfunded <laughs> community. Yeah. Um, and they're really, you know, at the time that I was doing this work, settlement services and organizations really were not even acknowledging mm. the existence of LGBT2Q newcomers or refugees mm -hmm. um, we would literally hear oh well we, we don't get any yeah. so why should we design safer programming mm -hmm. so I was very aware of 
you know, the really immediate and, and urgent needs to start creating better settlement supports, mm-hmm. as well as to try to address some of the ways that the, the refugee system kind of um, works against LGBTQ refugees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I guess, a bit of a personal story in terms of how I got involved with Rainbow Refugee in the first oh, place. If okay. I don't know, is that yeah. appealing yeah. or not? Oh, yeah, tell us, please. <laughs> so... Um, Rainbow Refugee is the sister organization for LEGIT, mm-hmm. uh, lesbian, was the Lesbian and Gay Immigration Task Force was its first name, now it's just Canadian Immigration for Same-Sex Couples. Mm-hmm. Um, when I first arrived in Canada, I'd been living in Thailand for many years, mm-hmm. had fallen in love there, mm-hmm. came back to Canada, not even sure that my partner would be able yeah. to stay. This was prior to the recognition of same-sex relationships in uh, Canadian law. Okay. So we really had no idea whether she would be able yeah. to stay. She mm-hmm. came on a student visa. You know, we yeah. were privileged enough that she could do that. Yeah. Um, and I remember finding out... We, fortunately, we came to Vancouver, mm-hmm. and I remember finding out about Legit, mm-hmm. and I remember phoning Mm-hmm. And hearing Chris Morrissey say, "Yes, it can be done," yeah, <laughs> and nice. the hope that yeah. that created, yeah. and then very shortly after that, going to our first meeting and discovering kind of a room full of people, mm-hmm. kind of working their way through. Mm-hmm. At the time, uh, same-sex relationships needed to use a humanitarian and compassionate application, mm-hmm. um, and so. You have to kind of give an account of your relationship. So this, yeah. it's you know, that is something that is kind of shared in some ways between, I guess, a, a connection that I see in my early work, which mm-hmm. looked at how lesbian couples navigated that process of okay. making making an H and C application, yeah. and how refugees navigate the demands of the refugee system. In both of those, people have to give kind of an official account. Mm of who they are mm-hmm. um, and part of who they are is a highly stigmatized yeah. identity mm-hmm. um, and it gets in many ways the, the account of who you are yeah. gets measured and evaluated against normative ideas of yeah. what it means to be LGBT yeah. it, it sounds very challenging because uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing is that it's very invasive too. Yes, yeah. Uh, particular, I mean, I would say particularly for the refugee process. Yeah. Um, we have to put it in the context of anyone who's fled homophobic and transphobic persecution yeah. has lived in a way where they've had to, you know, to be highly controlled and careful about how they present, um, self-monitor, and this is something that I've learned through my research, you know, people tend mm-hmm. to become very adept at self-monitoring mm-hmm. um, and hyper-vigilant, hyper-vigilant yeah. to threat, and mm-hmm. this is, I mean, this is true of any persecutory situation, yeah. but it's, I think, particularly true around, or particularly relevant around sexual orientation, gender identity, or expression persecution because this form of persecution often starts in people's families. Yeah, yeah. Often starts very, at a very young age. Yeah. Um, you know, people's gender identities and expressions start, you know, 
are, are you know, as young as two, three, four. Yeah. Um, children are expressing their own felt sense of their identity, and mm-hmm. so they may start. I've certainly heard many accounts of people who, you know, started experiencing abuse in their homes at a very young age, and then again, what my research showed was ways that people's everyday lives brought them into contact with threat. You know, mm-hmm. their, their neighborhoods, their schools. Yeah. You know, so it's this kind of paradoxical um, no place feels safe. Yeah. The threat is everywhere, and yet it is not acknowledged, mm-hmm. you know, quite often. Mm-hmm. Homophobic and transphobic persecution goes yeah. on kind of unacknowledged, under the radar, not public. Yeah. Um, and so it is this paradox of being ever-present, mm-hmm. but also invisible. Yeah. So people have lived and survived through that and developed some some really important survival tactics Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. get through that um, including kind of covering or masking gender expression Mm -hmm. um, distancing themselves from their identity claims Mm -hmm. and then the demands of making a refugee claim are to start you know very first question that they're asked is and why do you need to make a refugee claim Mm -hmm. sometimes this is in the airport with an anonymous CBSA officer sometimes it's inland with an IRCC officer, mm-hmm. but either way, it's an anonymous government official, yeah. and people, you know, all refugee claims are complex, but yeah. SOGI refugee claims are particularly difficult because they require people to narrate very intimate, often traumatic events in their lives to a complete stranger. Yeah. Yeah. And to try to provide some kind of documentation or corroboratory evidence of something that they've worked their entire lives to hide. Yeah, yeah. 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 And there is also that aspect of uh, being in front of uh, an authority figure that in their home country were the persecutors. Exactly. being questioned if you are or not, or whatever questioning they're doing, it's, it may be traumatic. Absolutely. Traumatic experience. Yeah, I mean, I, and again, that's that would be true for all refugees in many ways, but I think there is a particular challenge when you know people who have experienced trauma again starting at a young age. We know that creates sort of vulnerability for complex forms of trauma, and then when what they're having to talk about is such an intimate and shamed aspect yeah. of their identity. Yeah. So it, in many ways, it exacerbates the the possibility for kind of memory disturbance, mm-hmm. late late disclosure. Mm-hmm. So people coming in and initially starting a refugee claim mm-hmm. under a different pretense, it, you know, political. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later, you know, when that story starts kind of crumbling and not making sense anymore, yeah. finally they tell their lawyer what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but often by then, it's too late because they're seen as mm-hmm. lacking credibility. Yeah. It sounds like it's very challenging. It is, yeah. And so I was wrapping up sort of my my first uh, study in this in 2010, mm-hmm. which was when the Conservative government started to a uh, fairly radical overhaul of Canada's refugee system. Mm-hmm. Um, there were very long backlogs. Mm-hmm. People were waiting over two years for their refugee claims at the time. Um, And so they, I 
I'd say forced through some changes yeah. um, that included hearings scheduled within 45 days. So we went from a period of people having, you know, kind of waiting far too long yeah. in anxiety and yeah. uncertainty to suddenly you have 45 days to get everything organized. And remember that people are working in a, you know, in a second, third, or fifth language. Mm-hmm. Um, interpreters have to be organized for meetings with lawyers. Mm-hmm. So they have 15 days to get their paperwork ready and 45 days to be ready for their hearing. And I was deeply concerned and with, with Rainbow Refugee around the impacts of this for LGBTQ mm-hmm. refugees, um, the possibilities of kind of late disclosure becoming more common mm-hmm. and, and having stronger repercussions. Yeah. Because the other thing that, that this overhaul involved was um, the government put far more resources into removing people quickly mm-hmm. um, and cut out what were some of the safety nets, mm-hmm. such as access to humanitarian compassionate appeals yeah. or what's called the pre-removal risk assessment. Mm-hmm. So we were deeply, deeply, deeply concerned about the potential impacts for LGBTQ mm-hmm. refugees. So even though I had started my research in many ways interested in how do we create better on-the-ground supports for people, yeah. um, and my, my intention had been to help with kind of the, the practice Yeah elements, applications, Um, what I ended up doing was working on policy Mm -hmm. critique and intervention, and so um, made several presentations to the Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration, Mm -hmm. Um, and and so I'd call myself kind of an accidental policy scholar in a way. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the policies that you were able to participate or, or, or even change? Or Yeah, so, I mean, we were not able to convince the federal conservative no. government that their overhaul of the refugee system was misplaced. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a majority at the time. They, you know, they could push through what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, what we were able to do was put in place a few things that I'd say mitigated the mm-hmm. harms. Yeah. So in the implementation process, uh, we worked with the Immigration and Refugee Board during their consultation process and gave them lots of input. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with the Vancouver Association for Survivors of Torture to kind of co-write, collaborate on, on those consultations. Um, okay. And what we asked for specifically was that the LGBTQ refugees be recognized within the vulnerability guideline. Mm -hmm. So the refugee board can make procedural accommodations Mm -hmm. when somebody is recognized as vulnerable. Okay. Um, And that might be vulnerable due to mental health problems. It might be vulnerable due to impacts of trauma. Mm -hmm. It might be vulnerable due to, you know, developmental disability. There's a range of things but we wanted people who were LGBTQ recognized as potentially, you know, to be included in the consideration of vulnerability. So we weren't saying that everyone who is LGBTQ is inherently vulnerable. Mm-hmm. What we were saying is when you look at vulnerability, what we need to, one of the things you should screen for is whether exposure to trauma around sexuality, gender identity, and expression has created additional vulnerability. Um, And what that allows them to do then is 
make changes. Some of them are subtle, but some of them are really important. Mm -hmm. So things like the order of who gets to ask questions first. Mm -hmm. Normally, it's the board member, the person making the decision, Mm -hmm. but it can be the lawyer. And what this allows is for people to work with somebody they're familiar with, somebody who knows their story, somebody who believes them first. Yeah, so it is creating that safety. It's yeah. I I'm not sure if it. I'd go as far as creating safety. It's mitigating yeah. harms. Mitigating. It's yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's. I think we still need to recognize that every time somebody is scrutinized, yeah. and evaluated about their the truthfulness of their life, mm-hmm. there's the potential for for harm. Yeah. 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 Um, I just want to go back a little bit because you mentioned the word soji. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm pretty sure that not everybody might be familiar with the, the acronym and soji. Can you explain what it sure. is? Sure, yeah, I should have. Uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is the terminology that the board mm-hmm. now uses. Um, it was, f- I think, first used in the Yogyakarta, Mm -hmm. which is an international human rights Mm -hmm. uh, document that looks at all of the different ways that international laws Mm -hmm. can be used to protect the human rights of LGBTQ people. And how is that important? Well, I think it's important, and I I prefer using SOGI, because it kind of recognizes the myriad ways that sexuality, gender identity, and expression can be understood and lived mm-hmm. across cultures. Um, using the acronym LGBTQ in some ways kind of limits us. It's you know they, those are narratives and identities yeah. that are well recognized and well lived in Western contexts, mm-hmm. but. May, may be less, re- you know, are less relevant. You know, they're certainly not the only way to organize uh, transgressive sexualities and mm-hmm. genders. So, soji kind of, in, you know, reminds us all, I think, to take that one step back and mm-hmm. recognize kind of the broader ways that people, mm-hmm. the, the range of ways that people can understand and live their sexualities and their genders. Yeah. Uh, you touch on a, on a topic that I want to explore with you a little bit more, which is the fact that uh, in Western culture, the idea of um, sexuality might be different from other areas mm-hmm. in the planet, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I'm curious to know how that impacted the hearing process. I'm glad you asked, because that that's actually a significant issue. It, in many ways, the questions that are asked and the criteria that are used in the refugee claim are reflections of sort of LGBT identity and the coming out story. So there was this expectation that people should arrive here and once they're in a place where they're safe that they should be eager to tell other people that they're gay or lesbian, they should be forming relationships, they should be participating in community, they should be able to speak out, you know, be out loud and proud basically. Um, And so what we were seeing was things like, I know one man who was turned down because he didn't recognize, this was not the only reason, but one of the reasons he was seen as lacking credibility was that he didn't recognize the meaning of the rainbow flag. 
rainbows have meanings, all kinds of meanings yes. in different parts of the world. And just, you know, he'd been here for less than a few months and yeah. it just wasn't something that was relevant or important to mm-hmm. him, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, in 2001, um, there was a lesbian claimant from Colombia, and this is, this is in federal court, so it's public, um, who was turned down and one of the reasons given was that she was an attractive woman who could return to Colombia and be completely safe. Oh, wow. And so there was this implicit mm-hmm. notion that, oh, if you're a lesbian, you must be masculine. Mm-hmm. If you're attractive in a conventionally wow. feminine way, yeah. you can go home and be discreet. So there is this strong bias. Yeah. Now, that was 2001, and since then, the federal courts have been very clear um, that stereotypes like lesbians must be masculine Mm -hmm. have no place in a refugee board decision. And they've also been very clear that um, requiring somebody to be discreet, you know, the fact of living in secrecy and having to be secret is a human rights violation in and of itself. And so... You know, the courts have corrected mm-hmm. many of these problems, but it, you know, each one of those court cases has been because there's been somebody impacted yeah. by a, a poor decision. So there's a lot of work to be done. Still, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm very pleased. One of the things that happened just last year mm-hmm. was that the IRB created a specific set of guidelines mm-hmm around sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression decisions. Oh, okay. um, it involved a fairly rigorous community consultation process, and okay. I, I was involved in working with many of the grassroots organizations that are across Canada and yeah. getting their input and feedback and try to kind of put that together in a written form to submit to the, um, to the IRB. Mm-hmm. And then we had two opportunities for two rounds of feedback, um, and then the guidelines were published last May. Oh, wow. And, it, I, I mean, people are very happy with them. They're yeah. being called uh, revolutionary. Yeah, congratulations. Um, yeah, yeah, no. It's, <laughs> it's a hard work. It felt, it felt really good yeah. to have uh, it, these guidelines very specifically address yeah. the issue of stereotyping. Mm-hmm. They explicitly address the issue of not applying standards mm-hmm. of the LGBT identity and coming out story. Mm-hmm. They specifically say... Refugee board members must consider the impacts of complex trauma and recognize, you know, there's training around how to recognize signs mm-hmm. of complex trauma. Yeah, yeah. Um, it directs them away from asking lots of, you know, intimate and invasive questions about people's sex practices and instead yeah. asks them to focus on what were the harms that you were facing mm-hmm. and how were you perceived that these harm, you know, that these harms were, were, th- were threats for you, yeah. basically. Yeah. Um, so really it has... And then also asking more questions around, you know, how do you understand your sexuality? What, you know, tell me a little bit about, you, you know, the, the language you use to talk about your gender and what that means to you. Um, so it's really changed, yeah. you know, what, when it is properly implemented. And I've, I've, you know, I guess I've been involved in a couple different ways. Now, one, I was one of the people asked to offer training to mm-hmm. the refugee board members, mm-hmm. which that was a fun interdisciplinary collaboration. Yeah. I worked with them. Um, it's a legal scholar, mm-hmm. um, Nicholas Hirsch, 
Mm-hmm. And he and I worked together, and it was fun because he's a legal scholar who reads a lot of psychology, and yeah. I'm a psychologist who's read a fair bit of law and policy work. Yeah. So the two of us, you know, we wanted two full days of training. Mm-hmm. What the IRB was able to pay for <laughs> was three hours. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's that a lot right? of work yeah. there mm-hmm. to be done. But you know, we, we had three hours, and we had three hours with every single board member making decisions across the country. So Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, Montreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had an additional three hours with their own internal lawyers on, on how to interpret and use the guidelines. Mm-hmm. So we completed the training, and then now, you know, doing some observing of hearings, I can say that, yes, there is um, board members are using the language and concepts of the guidelines. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say, obviously, a three-hour training. What that can do is sort of give language and concepts mm-hmm. to people who are already inclined to be kind of sensitive yeah. and respectful. It is not going to create a, a shift in values or beliefs for yeah. somebody who, you know, and it's certainly not going to indre- address the implicit bias that we all mm-hmm. have. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, obviously more work needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, just last month uh, that I presented at the Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration again mm-hmm. <laughs> and around the training components. So they're doing a study now of... Mm-hmm how the IRB selects their members, how the IRB trains their members, and complaint procedures. Yeah. And so that was some of the input that, that I gave, along with others who, who do work with mm-hmm. um, LGBTQ and women, you know, many of the refugees who would be making claims that are deemed um, particularly vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds like there is a, a shift on perception that instead of looking at a, a perspective of the government, mm-hmm. it's more focused on the claimer and what their experiences are. So it sounds like the training that you're providing, it's, it's to help with this shift? And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's, it's helping. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly the, the guideline directs board members to really listen and pay attention to how is this particular refugee claimant understanding their sexuality, Mm -hmm. their gender identity, and their expression, rather than going in with sort of a predetermined set of criteria that they must have had relationships, Mm -hmm. they must be engaging with community those kinds of things. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think it creates what you know what, what in counseling language we would call a more client-centered approach to the boardroom interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so that you know, I think that is a really positive step in the yeah. right direction. The other reason that I'm pleased, you know, let's say cautiously hopeful about the impacts of these guidelines is that they introduced uh, intersectionality in how board members think about risk mm-hmm. and vulnerability and safety and how they analyze a claim. So recognizing that there isn't sort of a uniform level of risk for mm-hmm. every 
person who's facing homophobic or transphobic persecution. Um, The example I often give is of uh, having a conversation within the same week with Mm -hmm. one man from Colombia who described Bogota as a fantastic place to be gay um, and another man from Colombia saying it was a terrifying place to be gay, that he'd spent 10 years on the run from his own family and gangs. Um, And, you know, the difference that made the difference in safety was... The first man I talked to was from a wealthy family. He never had to take public transit. Mm -hmm. He could drive a private car. He grew up in Bogota, so Mm -hmm. he spoke like somebody who belonged there. The other man, who had been at incredible risk, was from a poor family, from a rural region. When he moved to Bogota, the second he opened his mouth, his accent made it very clear that he was not a person with wealth, um, yeah, and you know, and he relied on public transit, things like that. All of those, you know, these are sometimes very subtle things that make a difference in how a person can keep safe or not. Yeah. And so, working with the board members uh, on how to sort of analyze and understand mm-hmm. the intersectionality and ways that it impacts people's life chances and possibilities yeah. for safety and, and risk was, a, I think, an important part of the training that mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm quite proud of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that has an important... Helping, helping board members understand ways that, in particular, gender nonconformity and not conforming to you know, strong social norms around gender mm-hmm. impacts or intersects with things like social class mm-hmm. um, to make people you know, more at risk mm-hmm. um, was, an import- I think, an important learning. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with your work, um, so I, I'm assuming that this perspective that you're bringing, it, it's informed by the research that you do, that it's very focused on narrative. Very much so, yeah. yeah. And I was, I was glad I was able to actually bring a little bit of narrative work into the training. You know, it, it's a bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> so you sort of have to work carefully. You know, their notion of training is fairly conventional. Yeah. But I did, yeah, I brought in narratives and had them read narratives from some of my research and then talk about what they saw. And it was actually, you know, they're sophisticated people. You know? yeah. I have an example here, if you yeah, like. Yes, with yes, that. please. Yeah. So this was one that I shared with them. So this was from an interview with a person I'll call Jamil. Mm-hmm. Um, he was growing up in a South Asian country where there was explicit criminal sanctions against LGBTQ folks. Um, most countries that were colonized by Britain share the same penal code language. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was introduced during colonization and, and in many places remains and in some cases has actually been strengthened. Um, so this, uh, and he, he would have been 25 when he was talking with me here and mm-hmm. here he was talking about you know, just a few years earlier than that. So imagine sort of somebody who's about 19, 20-ish, okay? okay? And he's telling me, so, you know, two in the morning, my friends would call me, hey, there's a cop car parked outside. And me and Jake, Jake was his partner, his boyfriend at the time, would sneak out the back doors. We'd go through the bushes and we'd hide somewhere. There were people that tried their best to make things worse for us. 
like my aunt went to the police station and made complaints. We heard the extent that she went to make our lives miserable. It was the vigilante groups. It was the villagers. It was the uncles. It was the entire system. It was the guy I was working for who would scream in front of his clients, Gandu, which means it's a very offensive word. Um, it was everywhere. It was in the buses. It was in the taxis. It was in the bars. It was everywhere. It's like a game you enjoy while you're hidden. But once you come into the picture, once you come into the mainstream, you're bringing yourself attention for violence. Mm. And so I'd ask the board members to read that mm. and then in small groups talk about what they, what they had read. And I think Jamil is really articulate mm-hmm. in describing that, the ways that you know, hiding and covering was a necessary survival tactic. It's a very powerful mm. uh, quote. Mm. Pe- people are poetic when yeah. we ask them their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, as much as possible, I've tried to you know, work with uh, forms of research that really center the voices of people who are directly impacted. Um, there's a lot of richness in narrative. Yeah. Um, I work with a kind of analysis called dialogical analysis that looks at the different voices that get kind of woven into a story mm-hmm. and ways that people are often pulling on sort of broader social narratives mm-hmm. or social discourses, ways that they may be bringing in kind of voiced others, a voice of, you know, their mother and their their aunt <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, in their stories and kind of looking at how kind of the contact between those voices is often a place where um, more conflict yeah. is at work. You know, and this is based on kind of theoretical work by um, Vygotsky. It's a Bakhtinian understanding of kind of selves, uh, selves as polyphonic novels. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find it a really useful way to think about intersectionality. Mm-hmm and the ways that we all are, are kind of navigating different identities, and in particular for, for LGBTQ refugees, mm-hmm. identities that are stigmatized or excluded or are under threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just this quote that you, you showed us today, it sounds very powerful, and there is so much meaning as you're explaining. So I'm curious to know, as a researcher and a scholar, uh, what have you learned from this experience so far? <laughs> Learned that policy work is tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's hard tough. to hard to hard to bring sort of the richness and liveness of, of human story into yeah. policy work. Um, it's a hard work. And yet, I also see the importance of trying to do you know trying to intervene in policy. Mm-hmm. Um, deep respect for the the resilience, the survival of human beings and a real honoring for the ways that communities come together to try and support each other. Dr. Jordan, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you, uh, it's been fun. Yeah, it was, uh, and congratulations on the amazing work that you're doing. Research in Focus podcast is produced by the Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University. Stay up to date on the faculty by visiting our research website at sfu.ca slash education slash research and focus and by subscribing to us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>